This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. In this month's programme, we get the latest on the COVID-19 crisis with IFAD's Marie Hager. And we have the next episode in our Meet the Experts mini-series, where we talk to IFAD's lead technical specialist on youth, Tom Amyonga. Also, news on tackling land degradation and desertification in East Africa and the Sahel with the World Agroforestry Centre. Then, news from one of IFAD's newest supporters, Maria Gladstone, an indigenous chef in the US, who's joining up with IFAD's Recipes for Change campaign. She'll have details of her group, Indigi Kitchen. It's then time for part two of our series with Italian master chef Carlo Cracco, where we meet farmers in Cambodia. Here we'll see how climate change has affected production and what's being done to adapt to the new climate reality. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Remember, we also have Arabic, French and Spanish versions of this podcast at ifad.org forward slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. The coronavirus pandemic is a global emergency affecting all countries, requiring immediate and sustained international action while reducing the terrible human and economic toll worldwide is rightly uppermost in our minds, we're also gravely concerned about the underlying problems this emergency exposes, especially for those most at risk for severe consequences, older people, poor households, the undernourished, and those who live in remote rural areas without access to services or help. These problems heighten the risks of the current pandemic and cannot be neglected. Marie Hager is Associate Vice President with IFAD. I asked her what kind of things IFAD's doing to change its projects to help smallholder farmers in developing countries cope with the COVID-19 crisis. First of all, we try to keep up as much of the regular program activity as possible, but COVID does cause tremendous challenges, no doubt about it. We are already seeing how restrictions on movements can make it difficult for farmers to access critical inputs or market their produce, uh, which has a potential knock-on consequence, of course, on on food prices and and food security. And as always, um, those hit the hardest are the most vulnerable or marginalized groups, such as women, youth and indigenous peoples. So to meet the challenges, we are repurposing a big part of our portfolio and we have introduced new measures. An example of repurposing is that we shortly after the pandemic started, reallocated more than a million euro to procure and distribute seeds uh, in an existing project in Bosnia and Herzegovina because they said from the project side that that was the most important thing to do at that stage. In India, women who used to grow and sell flowers are now drying and coloring these uh, flowers. 
uh, and hopefully that will uh, give them some of the income that they normally would have gotten if they were able to sell the flowers. So these are just examples. As of early August, um, IFAD has approved over 100 million US dollar in uh, the repurposing of, of funds through uh, existing projects. In terms of new measures, um, we have introduced what we call the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility. Uh, the idea uh, with this facility is quite simply to make sure that food production doesn't stop. Uh, we contribute with basic inputs such as seed and fertilizers, and uh, we also contribute with, with finance and advice. So in, in July, uh, IFAD approved the first 11 proposals to be funded through this uh, new facility, representing uh, more than 11 million US dollar in facility finance uh, and more than 5 million uh, US dollar in co-financing from governments and our implementing partners. So let me say, um, we had a lot of work to do before COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19 certainly has added uh, a lot of work to our um, staff and, and to our portfolio, um, but uh, we do what has to be done. Even though economic problems are hitting home in developed economies, why is it so important for donor governments not to forget the issues of food security? Well, the COVID-19 uh, health crisis is uh, becoming an economic crisis in all countries. We already see disruption in food systems across the world, uh, particularly in, in the South. But we are seriously running the danger of ending up with a severe food security crisis. And we know that hunger has been on the rise globally for the last five years. Uh, it's now estimated that uh, there are roughly 690 million people that go to bed hungry every day. And additionally, 2 billion people don't get enough vitamins and, and micronutrients. So the trend has gone the wrong way. And with COVID-19 on top, uh, the needs are dramatically increasing. Many governments are thankfully already in investing in, in food security issues. And, and we simply need these governments to step up further and we need new governments to come on board. And I, I do think it is important to remind all of us that a food crisis in the South can well develop into social unrest, uh, migration, and, and even lay the ground for terrorism. It is really in everybody's interest to avoid such scenarios. Additional, I would say, to have a moral responsibility to make sure that people are not uh, starving. Are you concerned that with the current pandemic economic slowdown, IFAD might struggle to get the funds to meet the needs of farmers in developing countries? More funds were needed before the crisis. And um, we know that many traditional donor countries are seeing dramatic economic decline. So the answer to your question is yes. EFAD's ability to respond to the COVID-19 crisis is dependent upon continued support from member states, as we are 
a fund that requires uh, replenishment. Uh, we will quite simply have to continue to explain that EFAD's uh, work is not only to support farmers in need, it is really to make sure that we keep up food production globally. Remember that uh, small-scale farmers contribute to 50% of calorie intake globally. If they can't produce, we are all in trouble. We will also have to continue to explain and stress that economic growth in agriculture um, is two to three times more effective at reducing poverty and food uh, insecurity uh, than growth through other sectors. This is, of course, something that EFAS member states broadly recognize, and um, we trust they will step up to make sure that the COVID uh, health crisis doesn't end up in a food crisis. And, and let me say that we are actually encouraged uh, by the signals we are getting from, from member states in the build-up to uh, the replenishment of our fund that will take place at the end of the year. Uh, we have important conversations going on with all of our members, uh, and the oral support is quite amazing. There is an understanding for what is happening now and how critical a situation we are in in terms of, of uh, food insecurity. But of course, um, it remains to be seen if the verbal support will translate into money, um, but we are optimistic in that uh, context. That was IFAD's Associate Vice President, Marie Hager. You're listening to Farms Food Future. You can hear that interview on our Arabic, French or Spanish podcast as well at ifad.org forward slash podcast. And next, we have the first of a short series, Meet the Experts. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Now we have the second in our new mini-series, where you get a quick introduction to our experts. Today is the turn of IFAD's lead technical specialist on youth, Tom Anayonga. He tells us a little bit about what he does. Young people know exactly what they want. Young people want jobs. There are about 1.2 billion young people all over the world now, and almost 60% of them are unemployed. So we want to zero down in how we can create job opportunities for young people in the area of agribusiness. We need to look at young people not as the so-called youth bulge, but more so, this bulge is a huge opportunity. One, young people have said they want to have better ways of access to productive assets. And this mainly relates to access to land and water, but also more importantly, natural resources. The second one is access to goods and services. The third one is to maximize on the two I've just talked about, they need skills. And not more so technical skills, but more of life skills, managerial skills, but importantly, business skills. I met a young man in, in one of the, our partner countries who had looked at a commodity chain, and in this case, it was the rice commodity chain. After studying the opportunities, he decided to be a transporter, prepared a business plan. It made the efficacy of the lenders, and he got actually a loan to start a transport company of agribusiness products. 
Right now, he's got two trucks. He's transporting rice from point one to point B, and he's actually employing another six young people. Way back, I was a project manager many years when I was still a young man in Kenya. About uh, 14, 15 years ago, I joined IFAD. And recently I joined the Environment, Climate and Gender and Social Inclusion Division uh, recently, where I'm now heading this uh, youth portfolio. That was Lead Technical Specialist on Youth, Tom Anayonga. We'll have another expert to meet in next month's edition from the Indigenous Peoples Team here at IFAD. Meanwhile, you can find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. And you can also find more podcasts at the same address, forward slash podcasts. Also, now in Arabic, French and Spanish. Coming up, we have news on land degradation in Africa. You're listening to Farms Food Future and I'm Brian Thompson. Land degradation poses a dangerous threat to rural populations in East Africa and the Sahel. It may be caused by deforestation, water erosion, overgrazing and a number of other invasive activities. These in turn threaten food security, nutrition and the livelihoods of local communities. Desertification and mass migration are only two of the many side effects. In sub-Saharan Africa, 60 million people are at risk of being displaced by 2050. IFAD works with the World Agroforestry Centre in Kenya for the reforestation of lands in Mali, Ethiopia, Kenya and Niger. One of their projects was finalised this year and revealed important discoveries as to how we should tackle this issue in years to come. Our reporter, Julia Gimarej, spoke to two of the project representatives about their findings and local activities. Developing solutions to land degradation that are specific to the needs and characteristics of each region, land and rural community. That's what it's all about, according to Fergus Sinclair, principal scientist at the World Agroforestry Centre. And this is done through the collection of data and evidence from multiple contexts with the active participation of local farmers. Fergus told me about one of the most important and innovative aspects of this project, which is its research and development approach. This is built on three things. One, involving farmers. Two, getting farmers to adapt technologies to a specific context. And three, establishing a network where communities learn and share their experiences with new technologies. Fergus told me more about how this process developed in Kenya. One of the things that they came up with was planting basins. So this is where you uh, essentially dig a hole so that you can catch water and then plant the maize in these uh, basins that have trapped the water. So in very dry years, you're able to beat the drought now, when we first started, a lot of people, um, uh, experts from, from outside, economists, even the, the board chair of ICRAF said, oh, that'll never work in Machakos. It works in, in West Africa, but it's not really suitable for East Africa because there's too uh, high a labor demand. When we uh, 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 tried out with farmers different sizes of basin, different depths of basins, in what we call plan comparisons, so that's the second new thing, 
rather than giving farmers a prescription, what we're doing is getting farmers to adapt a general technology to their particular local circumstances. So the farmers had different sizes, different depths uh, of basins, and we found that they were very interested in them. And that was because they could find ways of adapting those uh, basins to their particular uh, farming system. And when we asked them, well, uh, why have you got so many basins? Uh, isn't there a lot of labor involved in digging them? And they said, well, uh, the, the key point is that we get a return to our labor with the basins. And they point over to their very sad maze that's failing completely um, using their normal practice. And with the planting basins, they were getting a yield, so a return um, on their labor. And it's very interesting that the farmers who were operating these planned comparisons, taking part in trials, you could really feel the learning uh, happening as you went and visited uh, what farmers were doing. Other farmers would come uh, from nearby to see what was happening and then uh, try it on their own farms. And that's where the third element comes in, the communities of practice. So getting people together in what you could call a type of innovation platform, where they're supported in thinking about what changes they want to make on the farm, and then uh, setting up for different farmers to try out different things, for them to see how things work on each other's farms, and to get the results from across a much broader testing of these technologies that happens not just in their village, but um, across uh, the whole of the dry, the three dry districts in, in Kenya that uh, the project was working in. And that way, they get much more uh, learning uh, as a result of uh, being together in a community of practice. And beyond the scaling up that's going on by farmers trying out these uh, different technologies, and I want to be really clear here, what we're doing is, and this is what the research in development is, it's accelerating development. So we're not stopping and saying, look, first we need to do the research, and then once we've got some recommendations, we'll push them out. What we're doing is scaling up as we go with as the farmers are doing the new technologies, the innovations, they are adapting them to their circumstances. The research information is going straight to the farmer so that they can uh, take it on board. So that's the way that the research is embedded in development. The research and development method goes beyond the idea of a silver bullet solution. Different backgrounds, issues and farmers call for diversified, context-based solutions. Gender is also a key factor for the project. Ana Maria Paez Valencia, eCraft social scientist, shared with me some gender insights collected throughout the implementation of the project. What we found is that these on-farm restoration practices had both risks and opportunities in terms of gender equality. For example, practices such as planting basins uh, may shift labor between men and women by increasing women's involvement in land preparation activities in which they had less involvement before. This had two implications. Uh, one was an increase in women's already heavy workloads, but also 
um, they had more autonomy over these activities. And this allowed them to plant earlier. Land preparation using the basins doesn't require access to a plow. Uh, so this is particularly important for women that typically have less access to resources, um, and, and resources also including a plow. So they usually have to wait for the use of a plow, delaying planting and risking um, the potential yields. Another interesting finding was that gender norms around farming activities, that is expectations about what types of activities women can or cannot do, uh, are changing in these communities. And this is opening opportunities for women to update restorative practices. Um, however, we see that these changes in norms are focused on farming or productive activities where women are now able to participate more. But there is actually no change on men's participation on that reproductive sphere, for example, on childcare, cooking and cleaning, those other activities that are also part of women's workloads. Uh, we also found a large participation of women in decision decision-making related to the uptake of new technologies and a wide perception among study participants that there has been a trend towards more joint decision-making among couples in recent years, including most farming decisions. This was particularly the case in households where the husband is away and the woman that stay on the farm may actually make more decisions on their own. This is a situation that's becoming very common in these rural areas where women are leaving, where men, sorry, are leaving their farms for parts of the year, looking for jobs and income generating opportunities beyond farming. Based on their findings, the project came up with a series of recommendations for on-farm restorations. First, it is critical to understand the gender norms surrounding farm activities and particularly those associated with new restoration practices and how these gender norms might constrain the uptake of those restoration practices. Another one is that project trainings should encourage the attendance of couples so to foster joint decision making and a collaborative division of labor. Trainings could provide a space to facilitate discussion of traditional gender roles including encouraging men to take on responsibilities in the home, such as cooking and childcare. In this way, restoration projects could actually act as a platform for social change and help transform gender inequalities within households and the wider community. Um, and rather than promoting single solutions and following the option by context approach, restoration projects could also seek to offer farmers suits of complementary interventions to address multiple issues and gender-based constraints to the use and uptake of new technologies. For example, we found some women reported that digging basins had impacted their ability to collect firewood. So combining planting basins with planting fuel wood tree species could help alleviate this constraint through the provision of fuel wood on the farm. Uh, and finally, Offering continual support throughout a project, for example, through farmer communities of practice um, and, and continuous monitoring, particularly in the case of many women farmers, not only has an impact uh, on successful farmer engagement and uptake of the practices, but can also help increase women's participation in household decision making. 
it also increases their confidence and helps their husbands and families recognize their capacities. That was Anna Paez Valencia from ICRAF in Nairobi, ending that report by Julia Gimarej. Up next, we hear from the new wave of indigenous talent putting indigenous foods on the menu. This summer, we welcomed three North American indigenous chefs to IFAD's Recipes for Change campaign. Chefs Sean Sherman, Hondo Lopez Carrillo, and Maria Gladstone promote Native American culinary heritage and ingredients through their delicious food. Maria Gladstone is the founder of Indigi Kitchen, an online platform which showcases and promotes indigenous recipes and ingredients. She spoke to our reporter, Julia Gimarej, and told us a bit more about Indigi Kitchen's mission and goals. Indigi Kitchen's mission is to reteach, relearn, and revitalize information about traditional North American indigenous foods in order to restore the health of Native people and non-Native people. And why is it important to support indigenous food systems for both indigenous and non-indigenous people? Studies demonstrate and common sense recognizes that supporting our local food systems and our small producers, our gatherers and gardeners and um, local community has demonstrated not only benefit for the immediate community, but also long-term sustainability. And of course, points to a general increased freshness of foods and therefore, you know, increased health um, nutrition in foods, but also the reduction of the need to be so processed and shelf stable um, and generally supports a deeper connection with the landscape and the area in one's own area. You are also part of the UN Global Indigenous Youth Caucus. What is one thing you would like to accomplish through this network? Uh, I think connecting with other Indigenous chefs is important, not just for the information that we can give, but also the information that we can learn and use with our networks to spread that awareness and those recipes and to generally support each other on a path of resiliency and sustainability in Indigenous communities. And Mariah, where can people go virtually or physically to learn more about Indigenous foods, recipes, and culinary culture? My work is all available online at indigikitchen.com, which is I-N-D-I-G-I-K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com, um, Indigenous Digital Kitchen, short for. Um, but it's also on facebook.com slash indigikitchen. It's on Instagram at indigikitchen. And it's on YouTube at indigikitchen. All of the work that I do involves making cooking videos to support the recipes that I'm sharing so that people can see and get a feel for the foods that they're about to make. And finally, can you share with us one of your recipes? 
Yeah. Um, so I like to imagine different recipes that people might be familiar with, but take them and make them using only ingredients that are indigenous to uh, North America. And so one of the things that I love making because I grew up on it is lasagna. Um, but lasagna in the way that we know it um, typically is made with wheat noodles and a lot of different cheese. So I reimagined lasagna using butternut squash and a wild game meat. Around here, I use ground bison meat, but it can be substituted for whatever you have access to. Um, and then I use tomato sauce, which tomatoes are, of course, an indigenous food, but are also something that can be really easily canned and preserved and grown in almost um, any climate. And so um, by making a tomato sauce um, with the ground meat and layering it upon layers of uncooked butternut squash and then baking it in the oven for about 40 minutes, you can actually use the squash like noodles, but they end up being a lot more flavorful and of course more delicious, in my opinion, than wheat noodles. So butternut bison lasagna is one of my favorite recipes to make. And you can check out Maria's profile under the Recipes for Change page at ifad.org. You can also access her butternut squash lasagna recipe at indigikitchen.com forward slash butternut dash bison dash lasagna. Thank you to Maria Gladstone and welcome on board to all our new chefs working with IFAD's Recipes for Change. Please go to ifad.org forward slash podcast to hear our other podcasts. In episode seven, we heard about working with farmers in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. In episode eight, we were updated on balancing biodiversity and farming with Margarita Astralaga. And in episode nine, we went all South Pacific with reports from Kiribati and Tonga. All that and lots more in Farms Food Future with this episode and more now in Arabic, French and Spanish. But back to this edition... Coming up, we hear from the Lavazza Foundation. Now it's time for a little coffee break, and it's also time to talk coffee. Luigi Lavazza opened the first Lavazza store in Via San Tommaso in Turin in 1895. Just over a hundred years later, Lavazza set up a foundation that promotes economic, social, and environmentally sustainable projects. These support coffee-producing communities around the world. In fact, the Lavazza Foundation is active on three continents in 17 countries with 24 projects reaching just under 100,000 coffee producers. To achieve meaningful results, the foundation undertakes development projects in partnership with public and private bodies, international organizations and NGOs. The Foundation's Secretary and the Chief Sustainability Officer of Lavazza, Mario Ceruti, says that it's only through teamwork that the living conditions in coffee-producing communities can be improved. Right now, the COVID-19 pandemic is hitting the retail side of the coffee business as customers see bars and cafes reopen, but with new restrictions to keep the virus at bay. I spoke to Mario from his office in Turin and he told me more about the impacts on the coffee growers themselves. 
people have to understand that, uh, again, the same, same story. The way things were, were done before uh, cannot be done uh, in, uh, in, in the same way. So just imagine harvesting, which is a kind of uh, social moment where people, uh, not in every county, but in the majority of counties, people get together uh, to, to harvest the coffee and, and they also have some social moment. Uh, uh, so things will have to change uh, um, there is a dramatic impact on the food security of, uh, of uh, a huge number of people. And in fact, uh, we, also, uh, we also created a couple of uh, emergency funds uh, to, to, to do some activity uh, with one in, uh, in well, mainly in our region, close uh, to, to Torino and uh, the Piedmont area where, where we are, but also another fund to, to do these uh, emergency activities in the coffee producing countries. And the, the activity that are most needed at this moment in our, in our opinion for what we have seen, they are really the sanitary aspects. So, you know, masks, uh, um, you know, all, all these type of, uh, of, of things, uh, and also uh, helping the people on the, on the food security. So in a way, uh, the 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 problem are the same. Also here, the, the major problem we had was the sanitary instruments and food food security. So in a way, it's a kind of uh, interesting to look at different situations that are at the end of the story have uh, the same uh, problems created by this uh, virus situation. Can you tell me a little bit about how the work of the foundation? focuses also on issues around women and around young people. What we have uh, ample evidence is that if uh, there is a family approach to production uh, and, of course, uh, to the management of, of the family itself, uh, the results are, 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 much, are much better. If we look uh, specifically from the youth involvement point of view, Brian, uh, what we have to realize is that we desperately need to create a situation where people, especially the new generation, the today young and tomorrow uh, grown-up people, uh, will find an interest, will find uh, the, the, the willingness to work in coffee. If that is not happening, and so basically this implies that the coffee should be uh, rewarding from the economical point of view, from the, uh, let's say, also psychological point of view. And this, uh, uh, it, it, you know, looks about uh, um, technology, IT, and, and you know, other, other communications uh, and other stuff uh, that have to create, a, help to create the condition. But the economic is also one of the first one. Uh, if this is not happening, we, we basically have a situation, we'll have a situation where coffee production will only be done or mainly be done by people that have uh, no other alternative. And, and this is not uh, a, a, a safe, it's not a wise situation because, uh, uh, of course, uh, it's a much more risky situation from the coffee business point of view than uh, to have uh, growers that are... Uh, uh, choosing to grow coffee, that are making a good living in coffee, and so on. And this uh, one uh, one of the possible approach to to improve the situation is, of course, knowledge. 
in our project, we work a lot uh, in, in, uh, in spreading knowledge and know-how, how to do things uh, in the most uh, efficient uh, way. So we are really talking about productivity, quality, um, input um, optimization, and so on and so forth, uh, but also technology. Mario, looking more at the, the, the systematic issues that you face, how is the foundation working with the public sector to address some of, of those issues in coffee production? You see, if uh, my, let's say, objective is to use a certain amount of funds I have, uh, I think the best is really to invest uh, these funds in, in some activity where other people like us in, in, in our case are also investing money. So if I'm investing, uh, I don't know, X uh, one euro and you invest one euro, at least you can be sure that on our side, we will do everything we, we, we know, everything we can to make it, uh, to make it uh, profitable, to make it uh, uh, having a, a, a good impact. So the combination is very important. There is a, a very, a very, I think, a very important uh, synergy uh, in uh, in working together, private and uh, and public. This is for the financial point of view. Of course, uh, another another aspect, uh, uh, and in some cases, uh, this is also a very important characteristics. The the public sector can offer certain uh, knowledge that are not, uh, let's say, easily uh, available. Uh, so, especially working with uh, agricultural spe specialized uh, agencies uh, and, uh, and, uh, and things like that. Uh, so, I, I think that uh, is, uh, let's say, the private public participation is, uh, uh, at the end, is very interesting. It's a bit long. Normally, uh, of course, the, 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 the speed of decision is uh, very different. Uh, especially from our point of view, it's a private foundation. So, uh, really, in principle, we can uh, we can take decision in really few minutes. We understandable cannot happen in a, in a public uh, organization. So, this is one thing to to think about. Uh, in some cases, there could be issues of efficiency and, and things like that. So, there are some uh, let's say problems or uh, in terms of let's say issues to consider, but. Uh, I think it's a very important uh, path uh, in, in the direction of, uh, of, of the development of you know, countries and areas of products that have the need for, for some uh, intervention. What's next for the work of the foundation? What are you, what are you working, where are we going? That's another <laughs> of those very tough questions. So, I mean, the tough answer. Uh, what's next? Well, first of all, the COVID is is, is changing the the environment, and so the activities of of an entity like uh, like the Lavazza Foundation have to change. Uh, I cannot tell you now what the changes will be. We are uh, trying to understand, trying to study, but I can tell you for sure that there will be some changes, some changes in the type of projects, some some changes in the activities that we, we will do, et cetera, et cetera. So that is one area where something will, will, will happen for, for sure. Uh, we are also designing a, a, a relatively new theory of change. 
we think that uh, um, we have to uh, to acknowledge the, the let's say the experience that we have done so far and trying to to check if everything is uh, aligned or not and this is another area and uh, i would say a third area which is also in in development is uh, is really to try to answer in the best way to the question how, what is the best way to finish a project this is really a, a, an area of um, lack of uh, theoretical development still um, and and also practical one so the question is really what is the best way to end an intervention during the intervention one way or the other one things uh, uh, can 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 be changed, can be reorganized. You can understand that, that something is not doing well, and so you can reorganize, do something else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, the real point is, how do you finish a project? And and of course, in principle, you can say, okay, it's midnight, uh, December twenty-first. Uh, good night, bye bye. And tomorrow, I'm not uh, here anymore, which is one way. But uh, this is, you know fighting, for example, against the fact that to continue a project is very efficient, of course, because you already know the area, uh, probably already have a, a general infrastructure, and et cetera, et cetera. So the tendency to continue uh, is, uh, is, uh, is there. Uh, but it's also true to say that uh, if you never finish a project, uh, it's, you, never, you, you really never have the, the moment of truth. So the way to finish is, 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 is an important concept to still uh, work on that. And we are probably uh, thinking to organize a kind of uh, workshop to discuss with uh, NGOs, with uh, international donors, with agencies. Uh, maybe sooner or later we, we will do that. One way we are thinking about uh, not necessarily the only one, but is one way. We're also doing some experiments. Is to imagine to end a, a, a project, a development project, by uh, creating a, a social business. And uh, and this uh, is uh, is of course easier if it is part of the starting, uh, let's say, mission of the project. Because if you just start to do that, at the end of the project is uh, is too late. Uh, so must be part of the construction of the project itself uh, uh, to consider how to finish. But this is an important development that uh, that we think uh, will be part of the of the next activity. Uh, last but uh, but not least, uh, we are also trying to uh, yeah to back to your previous question to work uh, a little bit more with the with the public sector. Um, and, and try to develop some, uh, let's say, knowledge and expertise to, to increase our uh, possibility to work with the private sector. Again, and not necessarily uh, for, for increasing the available funds uh, only. This is important because uh, clearly it's better to do a bigger and, uh, and a wider project than, than a smaller one in most of the case. Uh, but also to to be able to put together synergies and, uh, and knowledge uh, to to deliver better better services to to the grower. 
thanks to Mario Ceruti from Lavazza Foundation. Coming up, we head over to Cambodia with Carlo Crackle. This is Farms Food Future. IFAD's Recipes for Change series takes top chefs to visit IFAD projects and cook with the householders. Together, they look at some of the impacts of climate change on crucial crops and ingredients. But they also get to see some of the solutions put in place with IFAD support so that farmers can build that all-important resilience. In the second of three reports, Sam Cole was with Italian celebrity chef Carlo Craco about two hours outside of Cambodia's capital, Phnom Penh. This area is affected by extreme weather events such as flooding. Also, the rainy season is shorter and dry seasons longer. This leads to increased pests and diseases. Overall, less rainfall and higher temperatures have affected rice production, a staple food for communities across Asia. Somla kako is a well-known Cambodian dish that's accompanied by rice, and production of many of the ingredients have suffered because of erratic rainfall and weather patterns. But IFAD's been working to help communities adapt to climate change with various adaptation techniques. Recorded prior to lockdown, Sam Cole has this report. The good thing about coming here, it's my first time in Cambodia, is that you rediscover the flavor of ingredients. For culinary experts, like Italy's top chef Carlo Craco, it's all about ingredients. And here in southern Cambodia, local ingredients are at risk due to the impacts of climate change. Visiting the home of local farmer Somer Sofat and her family, he discovers that even rice, the main crop for most farmers here and a staple food across Asia, is being hard hit by frequent droughts and torrential rains. Before, they used to be able to count on two rice harvests a year. But now they're struggling and can get only one. If it carries on like this, it will just get worse. Songre prepares for Krakow a traditional recipe, using local ingredients that soon she may no longer be able to find. Look how well she's dicing them without cutting her fingers. As the chef lends a hand, Somret tells him how the excessive heat is taking a toll on her vegetables too. Before it was not so difficult, but now, due to frequent drought, many vegetables do not grow. Even bananas, which used to do well. Often we do not get enough vegetables to eat. To help farmers like Somret and her husband build their resilience to climate change, the UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development supports a project that is introducing low-cost technology and more effective farming practices to over 90,000 rural families in the country. Like this mechanical seeder, which sows rice in neat rows, wasting less seeds and reducing the amount of labour, water and pesticides needed. Or drip irrigation systems that save on water and sustainable farming practices, such as using straw to maintain soil moisture. Ifad's Mengsek Fusef tells the chef how the community is benefiting from these tools. They produce more crop and uh, they have more diversified uh, uh, farming system. So this is uh, helping them to better cope with the uh, climate change, such as drought or flood. Through the project, farmers are learning to diversify their produce, so they are less vulnerable if one food fails. 
and encouraged to make the most of their available resources, they use manure to produce methane gas for cooking. The waste ferments inside the biogas digester, releasing the gas and providing them with a handy byproduct, a natural fertilizer for their crops. It's fantastic. All you need is a couple of cows and you have enough gas for cooking twice a day. Somret now saves on firewood, and cooking is a smoke-free activity. I found that she is a great cook. She tries to preserve the real flavor of the recipe and enhance it through the ingredients. You must never take for granted that what you have, you will have forever. What you have, you must cultivate, maintain and preserve over time. This could help us in the future to preserve all of this biodiversity, all these varieties of ingredients that you can find only here. With temperatures expected to rise, Somret knows her family faces an uncertain future. And it's only by adapting to the changing climate that recipes like Somra Kako may live on as a family tradition. Thanks to Sam Cole for that report. We'll be seeing how climate change is being adapted to by communities in the Himalayas as we go cooking in Bhutan next month with Sam and Chef Krako. And you can try Somlar Kako for yourself. You can find that recipe at IFAD's website. Just click on Latest, then Campaigns, then Recipes for Change, and scroll down to the Carlo Krako page where the recipe is located. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Remember, we now produce all our content in French, Spanish and Arabic as well. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Minetti, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcast. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of October with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.